0: Welcome to Calvary Connection. Good to be with you as we gather to be in conversation with one another. Uh, It's good, right, to be in conversation. This is relational building that we're doing here, and just being the body of Christ together. Uh, And we're glad to have you with us.
1: Well, good morning, church. It's Pastor Jeremiah and Pastor Janelle here for, I don't know, podcast podcast. Five, six. six. six,
0: One of those. Another exciting episode.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we have just had a blast reading through this book uh, in conversation with all of you. And uh, today we are talking about chapters 11 and 12, which we probably could talk about all day, all night, into the next year. So much great material here. So we're just going to dive in, but again, just wanted to say welcome. Um, glad you're reading along and uh, however you're reading along, just be in conversation with us, join us on the Zoom and and dig into some of this great Lenten material where we can reflect together. So uh, we're just going to jump right into chapter yeah, 11 and 12. And I'm just going to start with a quote um, from our friend, Ron. Uh, uh, the, so again, the chapter, is entitled, This Is My Body. And listen to this powerful story uh, to just dive in today. Ron writes, one of our Western North Dakota pastors visited Mother Teresa's ministry in Calcutta, India, arriving just in time for their morning devotions. Uh, Mother Teresa noticed him and as soon as the service ended, she asked him to join her on a morning walk through a slum area where they found a man who had died during the night mother Teresa insisted that this pastor pick up the body and after doing so she said this is the body of Christ given for you wow amazing that's an
0: incredible way of thinking about that
1: um so i mean i just think to think uh obviously we have a lot of of, of things to dig in here with this but just that physical touch the weight um the death, the resurrection, uh, being in India. I mean, just so many things that what a powerful story. I'm sure Ron has kept with them through his entire ministry. Um, but we're gonna dig into this idea of this is my body. What is Jesus and what is Christ up to here in uh, this incredible chapter? So let's dive in. What were yeah. some of your impressions, Jeremiah? Well, I
0: think that Roar really is accurate when he talks about the difficulty that this yes. statement that Jesus makes yes. presents to these hearers.
1: Absolutely. You know, we
0: see this in in the sixth chapter of John when when uh, yes. when Jesus says this for the first time that this is my body and, and I'm going to be giving that for you and you must drink my blood in order to be a part of this, and you see all of the the people just kind of turn away in disgust, where the, the crowd shrinks by a huge amount. Sounds gross. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and, and it sounds gross to us, but you can especially think yeah. of, you know, in that time and place right. when there were such strict requirements on what you could eat or not eat, what you could touch or not touch. The idea of touching a human body that was dead, touching human blood, eating or drinking those things is so... Yeah. Opposite of what was allowed that it would absolutely have turned people off. But It would have
1: shocked everyone to yeah. hear this and then to try to understand What was be the meaning behind it all? Yes. I mean so again some really shocking stuff um, Those who eat it uh, drink it um, You know, what are we talking about? And, and yet, you know, um I think talking about eat me, I think Rohr says in this thing, like Jesus literally says, consume me. Um, I used to teach confirmation and say, we, our desire is to get Jesus in our belly, get in my belly, <laughs> get into my guts, transform me from <clears throat> inside out. Um, and obviously we have an understanding of this in our communal practice, uh, that I think Martin Luther got this right from the beginning, just talking about regularly practicing Christ in us. Yes. Not just with us, not just around us, but literally getting inside of us so that the restorative nature of Christ can dwell in each and every one of us.
0: I think that really ties into this concept that Rohr talks about called the real presence, yes. right? The idea yeah. of God being actually present in communion, in the The bread and the wine, Uh, and I think it's important for us to kind of dig into some of these. I think so too. Yeah. So there's a few different understandings in the wide range of Christianity today uh, about what communion is and what happens in the bread and the wine. Uh, So Rohr, coming from a Roman Catholic perspective, has this idea of transubstantiation, right? right? the idea that in some way the the bread and the wine, during the words of institution, physically take on elements of the actual body and blood of Jesus, the physical presence that's uh, there with the, the bread and the wine together. Uh, Luther had a slightly different take on this, yes. this idea of consubstantiation, the idea that it might not necessarily be an actual physical presence, but that in some mysterious way, Jesus is present is here, right. in, with, and under, as he says, and right. as we try to say in Communion, the bread and the wine. Uh, and then there's a the third way that is often uh, used in Communion in a variety of Christian churches, which is the idea of a memorial meal, right. uh, the idea that this is a symbol. symbol yeah. yeah, that this is not something that Jesus is say, saying, I'm actually here, but do this in remembrance the idea of this just being a symbol. And so these are three different ways uh, that a lot of people will understand communion. And as we read Roar, yeah, I think it's important for us to understand what he's coming from, where right. we're coming from, where others are coming from.
1: Right, I think that that, we talked about this last time too, the the host box, the tabernacle. Yeah, absolutely. That's why the Catholic Church has that because they literally cradle Christ. Um, they want to honor Christ and that's the genuine reflecting and things. And again, we have a little less a ritualized understanding, but I think kind of what Roar says, in Christ, Christ is in everything. So we, with believing hearts, when we say the words of institution, the command of God, having the bread and wine there, that it it does take on Christ. And literally we can taste it, feel it, be transformed by it. Um, And once we walk away, and come back in, we would need to hear those words again yeah. and have that believing heart again. Whereas the Catholics would say it always stays. And so we eat that. That's why they serve it. People don't touch it. You know, there's just a lot of rituals around that. But I would say the majority of the world does it as a symbol of mm-hmm. remembrance. Absolutely. Um, they don't do it very often because of that. In the Catholic church, they do it every mass. Right. Um, the Lutheran uh, liturgy is set up to do it. It's a gathering yeah. word meal sending and oftentimes we skip the meal part so we do it the first and third Sundays or the first and third Wednesdays but really our church is set up to do it as often as possible too.
0: And that was Luther's take on it right? Yes. He he said you know as often as you gather when you're sitting down for a family meal you know have have communion this should be a regular practice for Christians.
1: And I think some people feel like when we do it too regularly it loses its meaning but I really think uh, like we talked earlier if we we felt that way with scripture like I'm just going to read once a week. Because I don't (laughs) want Wednesdays to feel like Mondays. You know, it's kind of the same thing. We want to embody Christ. And again, it's a ritualized way that that literally we can taste and feel and and, and be in communion together. It's one of these things that COVID has really stretched us to say, what about the individuals who are isolated alone? We don't usually give communion to ourselves and bless it. And we were cognizant of that. Um, We didn't want to exclude people. The the meal is not exclusionary. Uh, But how do you bless them yourself and eat it yourself? Um, uh, Because it's meant to be in fellowship. And so I think there was a lot there. But again, I think it was really helpful to know communion is practiced in different ways, understood in different ways. Some believe this is, and some believe it's kind of a symbol of
0: Right. And I think going back to that piece of it, that our service is built around having it as part of part of the worship service and that I, it's meant for us to be participating in because we, we need it constantly that presence of God in our lives. There was this quote uh, on page 134 that I think is really important, kind of ties in with that as well. Um, it says, as Pope Francis insists, the Eucharistic bread and wine are not a prize for the perfect or reward for good behavior, Rather, they are food for the human journey and medicine for the sick. Yeah. We come forward not because we are worthy, but because we are all wounded and somehow unworthy. I did not come for the healthy, healthy, but for the sick, Jesus says in Mark 2. One wonders how we were so successful at missing this central point. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It makes me think of when I was in candidacy, where Vicar Daphne really is. Um, my, my last interview, we were talking about the worship service, and I remember saying, um, when after i'm fed with a good preached word like i am law gospel i'm convicted i'm on fire i'm inspired i long to go up to the altar to consume christ it just feels like it's like the dessert it's like the 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 tool the energy to go out then and be the church and i remember articulating something like that in my interview and it was silence afterwards and i thought Oh, boy, I probably missed up the theology. I probably said something that, like, wasn't Lutheran or something. And afterwards, it was my mentor who just said, Janelle, God is up to something because I think very few people connect how the worship service flows to have you hungering. For the word of God and then for God's meal and how that all comes together. And again, I my little pea brain can't understand all of this, but I do I did feel that way. Yeah. And I think here again, um, maybe it's because I needed the medicine. Sure. I, I needed that connection. I needed to know that I was connected with the larger body of Christ during that time and, and church was one of those ways that I could do that.
0: Yeah. Well, and in so many of these things. I mean we talk about you know, transubstantiation versus consubstantiation. The real key about about all of these things is our understanding that this is for us. You know, This was a big piece for Luther, that a believing heart is one that believes that communion is for them. If you believe it's for you, then it is for you. And I think that that is such a a key part for how we understand who we are as Christians.
1: Right. And I think the two phrases, as as we teach this, uh, that are key in the scripture is this is and this for you these two phrases we hang on uh, for the same reason we jesus doesn't say uh i kind of sort of i'm going to be like the bread or do this uh, because it's going to kind of remind you of me uh, no he says this is my body and so we take god's word jesus's word for for truth and so that this is part, <coughs> the Lord talks about here too um and and then the for you, uh, and he says here on, on page 136, in the Eucharist, Holy Communion, Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it, we move beyond mere words or rational thought and go to that place where we don't talk about uh, the mystery anymore. We begin to chew on it. We yeah. can taste it. Jesus did not say, think about this. Jesus said, eat this, yeah. consume this, and really, really important directives. Yeah, I love
0: it. I love it. Well, anything else about Chapter 11? You know, I think
1: one more thing that, um, you know, again, I could be on my own podcast all day long about this but one thing that I think the practical application of this um, we struggle with sometimes what age to have communion how often to have communion when to have communion when it's appropriate Um, how do we celebrate it with our Catholic brothers and sisters and our Presbyterian brothers and sisters who understand it differently how does that unite us and um, one of the revelations I had was after my dad died Um, how do I commune with my dad And I remember uh, a pastor friend, mentor, saying that it's why the railing in many churches is in a semicircle Because you're communing beyond time and space. So every time you kneel at the altar, you can envision your dad feasting with Jesus in the same manner that you are. And that connected me to him in a real powerful way. And then I started thinking about connecting with the next generation. My kids are going to be off but if they're in school in California and we're communing at God's table, we're connected in a way. Uh, Christ connects us. And I think that is just a real powerful statement about why it's so important to understand that Jesus says, this is my body and how it unites us between time and space With those who have gone before us and are in eternal kingdom, feasting with the Lord and those who are going to come after us. And for me, I think that's why it's just such a powerful time and why I would practice it daily if I could, um, because uh, I need that medicine.
0: Well, I think that's exactly right. I mean, for me, that idea of that community that we get with communion is such a central piece. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I talk about that a lot, that when we gather together at the meal, it's not just us. You know, it's the whole family yeah. of God gathered across time and space. And there is something sacramentally powerful about that. Amen. Uh, that I think is, we cannot emphasize enough. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Good. No. Well, let's jump into chapter 12. All right, chapter um,
0: 12.
1: Why did Jesus? Why did
0: Jesus have to die? I, oh, my This is like every
1: children's sermon across yeah, America. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So where do you want to start with this?
1: You know, I think that when we visited just earlier, I think um, there's a part of Roy I really, really agree with Mm -hmm. here. And yet I think the Lutheran lens here again, we are so used to the both and, saint and sinner, all of that, that I do feel like he helped me understand that I do sometimes get stuck in Good Friday being the transactional Mm -hmm. time that um, is limited to that day. And there's a reason why we call it Good Friday, is that it's not just a Friday once on the calendar, it is supposed to continue on. on. It's a continuous, not a one-time transaction, but a daily. But I also think that that daily piece is the both and for me. And so, um, not that I necessarily disagree, you might, but uh, that, uh, it stretched me, but I think here, uh, why would Jesus die? I would say a both-and response.
0: Right. Yeah, and I, I kind of had a similar reaction. Okay. It seemed to me, and I think for me it did take the form of disagreement to some degree. Uh, Roar, again, from my reading, uh, seemed to be saying it was either yeah. this penitential, uh, what was it, what, what the, the, the um, substitutionary atonement yeah. theory. yeah or it's this transformational piece that focuses on his life. And I think it, I think it's a fair criticism for him to say, yeah. well, if it's, if it's focused on this substitutionary atonement, then why don't we just take those three days and that's all that matters?
1: We should just do that. Exactly.
0: And I think that's fair. Obviously, we don't. We take the whole life of yeah. Christ, his teachings, his ministry, all of that is important. Uh, and I think the question that I came out with was the same for you, is that why does it have to be one or the yeah. other? Yeah. Why can't there be some powerful redemptive arc that occurs between Good Friday and the Resurrection on Easter Sunday? And we have this transformative lessons that we yeah. learn through Christ's ministry and his life and the way that he interacts with people. I think that both of those things can exist in the same time and space.
1: I agree. And yet I think often we catch ourselves in a church talking about being saved. Yeah. Yeah. one time, sure. tra- or this is when I was born again. Right. And and really, it, it's a yes and, it's yes. a both and, because God has been at work before you recognize that you were born again, or baptized, or whatever you want to say, or saved. And and yet, if it doesn't matter every day, right. it would just feel like, oh, wasn't that a great day in 2012 when I was saved? <coughs> it, it has to mean something today, too. Yeah. And so I get where people use the language that, that something new started. And I would say that new started in my baptism, mm-hmm. maybe even with my birth. Um, God had a role, obviously, we've talked about that. But I do think I can see where the church gets, sounds mm-hmm. like we talk about one transaction that then launches us somewhere, but we when we forget that that has to happen every day. Yeah, Roar <laughs> talks about
0: stuff. getting stuck in the thanking Jesus for that rather than emulating yes. Jesus. And I think that's absolutely fair. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I do too, I do too. Um, so we should maybe talk a little bit about what this Penal substitutionary yes. atonement theory is yeah. right. I mean, that's a whole lot of words that we don't use in everyday right. <laughs> conversation. What is Rohr talking about? Um, so, just to give you some some background on this, when when he says this this penal substitutionary atonement theory, is this idea of trying to answer that question of why Jews had to die that was you know uh, first really emphasized in the early Middle Ages. Yeah, uh, comes out of the tradition of the feudal monarchy, right? The idea that. Uh, the system is set up where you had people at different levels and justice worked because they were at these different levels and if you offended the king, well then satisfaction was demanded. Uh, And so Anselm comes up with this in the early 1100s I think it was where he's saying this is kind of how it works in heaven too that because we as humans have transgressed God's honor that we have done something in some way, we have committed sin, sin it demands satisfaction, it needs to be atoned and what Christ does on the cross is to substitute himself to atone for that, mm-hmm. uh, which certainly has been mm-hmm. a, a variety or a flavor of that right. throughout a lot of Protestant Absolutely. theology ever since, mm-hmm. right?
1: Absolutely. No, I think you're right. And I, I think in some ways it helps gives us some understanding. Mm-hmm. And again, if it's just transactional, we're going to miss part yeah, of the, the, the story absolutely. so I think that's good That's helpful.
0: well and Lu- it was it was that way for Luther too and again Luther comes out of a culture that was very much that way and so this made sense to him in a way that it might not make sense to all of us who don't live under that same feudal structure right
1: right yeah. good what about the justice piece here yeah. um you know he kind of bounces between um what's the words
0: uh, restorative res- and retributive? Yes. Yeah, yeah Take us into that a little bit. Sure, so two different concepts of justice, right? The idea of retributive justice, which is probably the justice that most of us are familiar with in our everyday sense, right? The idea that If you do something wrong, you get punished for it. There's retribution against the wrongdoer. Kind of the way that uh, in the US our criminal justice system is often set up. Right, Right. You break the law, you go to prison, you pay a fine. It's not necessarily meant to restore anything. It's retribution to try to teach you not to do that or to discourage other people from doing that. Um, The opposing view of justice being restorative justice. The idea that acts of justice are those which fix what is broken, which mend relationships, which build those bridges back. Uh, And we see this time and again in Jesus' ministry, right? Right. When he is spending his time trying to repair the rift that exists between the Samaritans and the Jews, the the rifts that exist between the adulterous woman and her community. All of these acts that Jesus is trying to do are acts of justice, but they're not retributive they're meant to try to restore relationship and restore community. Uh, And that's what Rohr tends to focus on as well, is the idea that if we're thinking about God as a just God, we often are meant to be thinking more in those restorative lines than the retributive lines.
1: Right, more a compassionate God versus a punitive God. Yeah, absolutely. And yet, I I, I think there is some um, examples of that throughout history of how both are used. Ron, again, had another great Hmm. example He talks about um, that he was called in to one of his colleagues, a pastor that um, ended up uh, being in jail for a DWI. And he uh, was a recovering alcoholic, and he had been sober for several years, but when his wife and children went out of town for several days, he impulsively drank too much vodka and then attempted to drive. He had been released uh, so Ron could visit him, and uh, Ron got his commitment to resume AA meetings, and his church council, was willing to have him continue as their pastor, provided that he go to meetings and remain sober. And his family was incredibly thankful that they could continue in the faith community and the community where they lived. And happily, he used this experience not only as a personal wake-up call, but a motivation to become a leader in the recovery community. Yeah. Uh, so both justices were really served here something that refined him kind of got him back in a healthy position and also that restorative justice that happened within his community because a lot of places uh you know we don't have uh many strikes against us when it comes mm-hmm. to that when we're when we're trying to not only model but also lead
0: yeah for sure for sure I think that's what's really powerful um so there was one quote here uh, that i think is really really powerful and, and, and had Roar kind of pushing me to kind of think about the crucifixion in a different way. On page what page one forty six, uh, where he says, "It is not God who is violent; we yeah. are yeah. that that yeah. it is because of us that the crucifixion had to happen. It is not God that God demands suffering of humans; we do, uh, and, and that is that's a powerful way of looking at uh, of, of the crucifixion, right? Yeah. And it's 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 yeah. not that God demanded Jesus suffer and die, but it's because that's our own impetus to demand that suffering and death
1: yep and i think again then to try to think about that in justice ways that if if jesus was willing to do that for us then what are we left to do and it really is to model continue to follow and that's being um this confession and forgiveness that we've talked a lot about and the lutheran church also really recognized that we stop we examine ourselves and we think about you know, I can control me, but is the hate in me coming out sideways? Do I need to? It's easier to point that you're wrong, and um, and I think that that part of that is is just understanding that uh, the violence that sometimes we see people will even point to and saying God is trying to be. Uh, Punitive
0: mm-hmm.
1: or or this is the way the justice comes, but but really I think to own that that's kind of how we Yeah, that's with. that's how
0: our systems yeah. function Yeah, right. and I think actually it ties into the, the, the lighter part of the, the, the chapter that we're looking at with the idea of scapegoating Yes, right? yes. the idea of yeah. of pointing out. Yeah, yeah the how does Rob put it, the the shadow material yes. that we have and projecting that onto others yes. uh, and condemning those those things in others projecting and, our sins yeah, yeah. exactly in a, in a christian context that might be more considered a sin right but yes. shadow material also works yeah. um, and I, I think that's so true i think that it, it's very very accurate to say that we are more easy, it's easier for us to see in others those things that we are guilty of ourselves you know, sure. if I have problems with being lazy or with lying, for me to be able to point out those things in other people is so much easier. Yeah. Because it's almost like I'm condemning others for my own failures. Right. You know, uh, I think Ror does a great job of explaining the, the uh, origins of a scapegoat and what that means. Yeah, right. That and good. and how this there's this practice of picking out an innocent animal and projecting all of our own bad stuff, our shadow material, our sin onto it, and then chasing it out into the desert. You know, that, that is such a human thing to do. Right. Right? Uh, we, we continue to do this. We continue to try to set up people to blame uh, rather than looking to ourselves. Right.
1: Yeah. I think in this political culture, mm. too, um, there was a great podcast, I think, by Brene Brown, and um, she is not a Trump supporter, And she did this um, uh, podcast about how she needs to start seeing Trump in a new light. Mm And uh, I didn't listen to all of it. I just saw a snobby. (coughs) I think in some way, even a leader, a Christian leader, who was, I I guess, so adamant about not being a Trump supporter, uh, to then come back and say, now i got to do my own work. Mm -hmm. I think that that is what we're called to do in the church. Very hard to do because especially when you vehemently disagree with someone, it's easier just to keep pointing out how wrong they are and using them as a scapegoat. I mean, Mm -hmm. then you can protect yourself from any wrongdoing you're doing uh, because it's so much easier to see it in other people. Such a human nature trait. But again, I think that's why, especially the Lutheran Church, I think Catholics too, we we value confession and forgiveness. We keep coming back to saying, we need some humility, we need to look in the mirror. um, And uh, we always get uh, kind of thumped for um, when we say, uh, we'll take some time now to confess our own sins. Uh, We don't give people enough time. They're just on Sunday afternoon and uh, we're already moving on. And I I think, you know, even laughing about that is true. Uh, I mean, that's why it needs to be more than just a once a week ritual uh, that we we constantly need to be self-examining. And I think to go back what uh, Kurt even said here too, we hate our own faults in in other people. And sadly, we often find the best cover for that projection in religion. God and religion, I'm afraid, have been used to justify most of our violence. I recall an ethics professor who taught that some of the greatest evil throughout history has been done in the name of religion. Yeah. Another just great example of how we have experienced this throughout our life.
0: Yep. And how we misuse that idea of sin by projecting it onto others in order to condemn them. Yep. You know, I, I, I'm totally with you that when I was reading through this, my mind also went to confession. And I was yeah. saying, you know... This is exactly why I think that's important, is that when we are able to honestly acknowledge our own faults rather than projecting them, that's when we recognize the unity that we have together, that we are all in the same boat, that all of us need God's presence, that all of us need grace, and that's what makes it hopefully more difficult to condemn others.
1: And I think the point that Rohr makes about um, really emulating the compassionate God is in what mm, we're sent yeah. out to do instead of feeling like, I think that, and again, the church has done this over the past, is that it's about getting to heaven. It's right. about the end game. It's the end result. And once I know I'm secure there, my life, I can live however I want to. There's a sloppy grace and all right. that kind of stuff. Yeah. But really, I think to think about after you confession, confession and forgiveness, after that transformation, after you've turned around, really that your life looks like a compassionate life is really the point here and I think Roy did a nice job putting that out.
0: There's a great quote on page 148 where he says, Christians are meant to be the visible compassion of God on earth more than those who are going to heaven. I mean that's just that's exactly right. You yeah. know, we're, we're, we're meant as followers of Christ to be emulators of that. And it gets back to what you're saying. It's not about this transaction, one and done. Right. You know, it's about being the hands and feet of God present here and now. I think that's just absolutely accurate.
1: And in baptism, we talk about living wet. Yeah, um, not that right. we were baptized on some day, but that we are baptized. And again, I know it sounds like linguistic here, but it really is a framework to say my baptism matters today, yes. not just on one day. And again, in the, in the other sacrament, that's how we celebrate it in the Lutheran Church.
0: Kurt wrote in about that too. And he says, I like Rohrer's emphasis on living as Jesus lived rather than living with the hope that we are good enough to get into heaven. Right, right. Let's focus on loving and helping our fellow man regardless of who they are. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Absolutely, Kurt. That's right. Absolutely.
1: Good. Um, You know, I think uh, to skip ahead here, Mm -hmm. um, Roar talks about on page 153, um, Mm -hmm. it does not mean you are going to heaven and others are not. I mean, here again, where we're trying to figure out, sorting it out here on earth. um, But Roar says it means you have entered into heaven much earlier and thus can see things in a more transient, whole, and healing way today. Um, I think about one of the praise songs we sing, um, you know, every knee will bow, every tongue confess to Jesus as Lord. Um, When we talk about that, some of us can do it today, but God is saying everyone's gonna do it at some point. And so that that promise that God's gonna redeem what God has created, I think rings true here too. But I think God coming to us, meeting us on our journey, getting a taste of heaven. That is communion for me. That is the sacrament of baptism for me. That is gathering word, um, meal, and sending. I mean, that is why all this ritual matters to me. That God comes and finds a way to meet me, little Janelle Netland in Bemidji, Minnesota, and says, you matter to me. I'm going to pursue you, and I want you to get a taste of, of yes, of four days to come, but so you can live an abundant life now.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and speaking of ritual, uh, we we end this chapter yes. with something of a ritual as well, right? Yes. We have this this powerful. this piece that uh Roar includes, uh this this practice that he wrote in a number of years back, yeah. right? And then just includes here about this dialogue with the crucified God. That was a powerful piece.
1: It really was. I think if you have not gone to this scoot up to page 155 Mm -hmm. and um as a linton discipline maybe just to do this you'll need some quiet space did you find that Mm -hmm. uh you need to focus and i'm going to return to this again because it was powerful and i was kind of distracted when i was reading it um but i think it was really great dialogue and it's scripted for us to just insert ourselves into this um, imaginative conversation. It's also a meditative prayer. Yeah, it was beautiful and powerful. And again, if you're not there in the book, skip ahead. Yeah, do this in Lent because it really was a powerful uh, thing, and in some ways felt like confession. confession absolutely, <laughs> did it? to you? When, yeah. when,
0: when I was when I was doing this, yeah, my mind kept going back to this is exactly how I feel when I'm practicing confession in church. You know, like laying these things out. Adopt, it's almost like adopting that mentality of, yeah. of opening ourselves up and acknowledging who we are and who Christ is. It's, it, it had very much a confessional feel to me.
1: Yeah. It's a great way to end the chapter. I think just reflective. And again, he wrote it years ago, inserted mm-hmm. it here, which I was thought, thought was so helpful. Um, and, and it really does help us understand the crucified Christ and how that um, transactional and ongoing event Uh, shapes us who we are today and, and helps us live a vital, purposeful life today, which is obviously what God wants for us. Well, I think we're out of time, friends. Again, we could go on forever on these two chapters. So much material. um, We will uh, wrap this up. Again, send in your comments, your questions at podcast at calvary.org. Join us for the Zoom conversation, um, just for some fellowship, if nothing else. And our next podcast will be on the next two chapters.
0: Uh, 13, 14. 14.
1: Uh, And again, if you're not up to that spot yet, don't panic. Uh, Just join us where you can. And uh, we hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time. Much love to you all. Uh, Thanks for joining us today. What a delightful conversation, engaging topics that matter every day and how we live our lives out as public leaders and Christians. And um, just really enjoyed the fellowship and the conversation and the Calvary connection.
0: Amen.